Good morning, church family. Let's begin this time in a word of prayer. Our Lord, we are so grateful to begin another Sunday morning together as a church family. We're grateful for the opportunity to sing the great truths of Scripture together. We're so thankful to renew our fellowship this time each week, and we thank you especially for your word. We thank you for this weekly opportunity to gather, to open up your word, and to consider a portion of it, and to consider the implications that it has for our lives and for all of society. And Lord, would you please descend, Lord, bring your spirit. May he minister to our spirits as we interact with your word. Might he change us as a result of our time in your word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, my friends, we are living in serious times. And serious times call for a serious church. Unfortunately, we don't have many serious churches in America today. What we have are silly churches. Churches with ministers who step onto the platform dressed as cartoon characters. Churches that hold Bring Your Pet to Church Sundays for a blessing of the animal service. Churches that remove their pulpits from the platform and with it the Word of God so that the audience can get a better view of the band. Churches that know everything about hosting carnivals but they know nothing of the historic confessions and creeds. Churches that are eager to teach you about your Enneagram score but are very hesitant to teach you the deep things of God. This land is filled with churches that, despite all of their efforts to gain an audience, are growing smaller by the year. Twenty-five years ago, the average American church had 137 weekly attendees. Today, the average church has 65. American society is seeing through the church's gimmicks. They're not, they're not buying it. In America's church is about as low spiritually as we have ever seen it. And I don't know where it will go from here, but I do know what the church in America needs. It needs reformation. Like a Martin Luther, John Calvin-style reformation. It needs a revival on the scale that the American colonies saw in the lead-up to the Revolutionary War. The American church needs to be rebuilt the way Europe was rebuilt after World War II. This is what the church in America needs today. Now, this may sound like a daunting task, and indeed it is, but we can take comfort in the fact that God has done this work before. There have been other times in history when the people of God were at a spiritual low when they were a beleaguered minority surrounded by a hostile culture, and it seemed as if there was no hope. But then God started a new work among them, and He restored their vitality, and He brought His Word back to the center of their lives. God has done this before. In fact, it happened in the days of Nehemiah. So if you would please, take your Bibles and turn to the book of Nehemiah with me. 
We're beginning a new series this week. It'll last 14 Sundays. And I've entitled the, the series, Rise Up and Rebuild. It's a call to the church to pursue reformation. Now, if you're not familiar with Nehemiah, you will find it in our church Bibles on page 398. This book was originally written about 2,500 years ago on the other side of the world. And it was written at a time when God's people were still largely confined to a single nation. It was the nation of Israel. And at the time this book was written, God's people were at an absolute low point. And here's how it happened to them. It had started out generations earlier with indifference to the word of God. They simply were not taking it seriously anymore. And so this began their spiritual drift. And for generations, it just got worse and worse. And so God would raise up prophets to call them back to faithfulness. Faithfulness to Him, to the national covenant that they had made. And they ignored all of these pleas. Finally, it got to the point where, where the Jewish nation was worshiping false gods, even sacrificing their children to these gods. And God finally would have no more of it. And so he raised up a pagan empire, the Assyrian Empire. And in 722 B.C., this empire rolled its war machine through the northern kingdom of Israel, destroying the land and taking all of its people off into captivity. Ten of Israel's twelve tribes were lost in that invasion. Now the two tribes that remained should have learned the lesson of this great trauma, but they did not. And they continued their downward spiral until finally in 586 B.C., God raised up a new pagan empire. This one was called the Babylonian Empire, and they marched into the southern kingdom of Judah, where those last two tribes were. And they obliterated the city of Jerusalem, the capital city of the nation. They laid the temple in ruins, they destroyed the walls of the city, and then they carted all of the people off, the best and the brightest of them, back into Babylon. When this happened, the people of God lost every institution that they had always counted on. They lost their temple, their monarchy, their land, their holy city, they lost all of it. And for 70 long years, they found themselves as a scattered remnant in a hostile society. And they were depressed, and they were despondent, and they wondered how they were going to continue on. For 70 years, this persisted. But then, friends, then God began a new work among them. He began a new work. God raised up yet another empire on the world stage. This one was the Persian Empire. And God raised up a new king, King Cyrus of Persia. And God used this pagan empire to begin sending his ancient people, the Jews, back into their homeland again. It was a remarkable thing, but you see, God is the king of all people. 
those that acknowledge him as Lord, as well as those who don't. And so if God wants to use a pagan empire and a pagan king to do good for his people, he can do that. And he did in these days. The first wave of Jews returned home under the leadership of Zerubbabel and Joshua. And immediately they got to work rebuilding their temple. And this shows us that the seeds of Reformation were, were being planted. Finally, God's people had learned the lesson uh, of the invasions and the exiles. Never again would they worship false gods. Soon as they got back into their homeland, they started rebuilding that temple. And then about 60 years later, another wave of returnees arrived in the Holy Land. They were led by Ezra. And Ezra began to teach the people of God about his words again. He expounded the scriptures to the people. And he, he helped to facilitate the renewal of their national covenant with God. And so now these seeds of reformation were, were taking hold and we could see new life beginning to emerge. But still there was much to be done. Much to be done. The Reformation was far from complete. And so, God raised up Nehemiah. And God would send Nehemiah back to Israel in the third wave of returnees. And Nehemiah would be used of God to complete the Reformation of his people. And today we're beginning our series through the book of Nehemiah. The book is named after this man. And this book tells the story of how God used him to lead his people to complete that national reformation, the national revival. And though Nehemiah had his life, his ministry, at a time that was very different from ours and, and in a different part of the world from us, I believe that our situations are close enough that we can draw principles from this book to our time. In Nehemiah's day, the people of God were in a spiritual low. In our day, the church in America is at a spiritual low. But in Nehemiah's day, God turned things around. He sparked a reformation. In our day, God can do the same. And this book will show us how God did it before and so how he might do it again. Now today we're simply going to look at Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. This passage will set the stage for the rest of our series, but it also gives us the, the first principle of Reformation. The first principle is this, that Reformation can begin when a man of God understands the needs of the hour and resolves to act, no matter the personal cost. Okay, I will say that again. Reformation can begin when a man of God, understanding the needs of the hour, resolves to act no matter the personal cost. So, Reformation is always a work of God. God is moving on the hearts of his people. He is drawing them back to himself, back to his word. But God also works through means. God works through leaders that he raises up. Reformation will begin... When a man or woman of God takes it upon themselves to seek his face and to draw his people back to himself. And friends, it's really that simple. It's that simple. 
God only needs one person to spark a reformation. Just one person, one man or woman of God. Someone who has been changed by the grace of God, who, who delights in the glory of God, someone who has a heart for the people of God, someone that has been captured by the word of God and has reforming zeal. And they're willing to do the work necessary to lead God's people back. That's all that it takes. And friends, Nehemiah was just such a man. Now, the scriptures don't give us a lot of background information into Nehemiah. In fact, all we really have is chapter 1, verse 1, which tells us he was the son of a man called Hakaliah. Now, that name means one who waits for the Lord. One who waits for the Lord. This would suggest that Hakaliah's own parents were very godly. Because, you see, in those days, people didn't choose names just because they liked the sound of it. They chose names based on the meaning of the name. They wanted their, their child to embody a truth that they clung to. And so I imagine Hakaliah's own parents living there in exile in the Persian Empire. And they were just waiting on the Lord to do a great work. And they give their son the name Hakaliah. We're waiting for the Lord to do something great among his people. And this, this son of ours, he will be waiting for God to do something great. And then Hakaliah grew up, and he got married, and he established a family of his own. And he and his wife bore Nehemiah. Nehemiah's name means the Lord comforts. The Lord comforts. So perhaps... Hakaliah and his wife were comforted by the fact that even though they were living in exile, that, that God was still going to continue their family line. There was hope that God was yet going to do something for his people. Or maybe it was even broader than that. By this point, the early waves of exiles had begun to return back home. Maybe they were comforted by the fact that they were witnessing God beginning his work. It's clear here that Nehemiah had the benefit of a godly lineage, godly grandparents, godly parents, and they successfully instilled piety into Nehemiah himself. And grandparents and parents, let that be an encouragement to you, that if you will just do the hard work of raising your kids in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and just make it your ambition to instill godliness in your kids. You can't force it on them, but you can do everything in your power to facilitate the, their spiritual growth. You can do that, and it may just be that God will use you in great ways. Maybe God won't call you personally to lead a great reformation of his people, but maybe you will be the one that trains the man or the woman who leads the reformation. Or maybe you will be like, like Hakaliah's parents. You'll be the couple that trains the man that trains the man who leads the reformation. But you, you will be a a link in that chain of godly people that he will use to accomplish a great spiritual work. This was Nehemiah, the man that God chose to complete the reformation of Israel. It was a man with a godly lineage. They had instilled the truths of God into Nehemiah's 
very soul. And then we also learn, chapter 1, verse 11, that Nehemiah was to grow up to become a man of great importance. It, he writes, I was cupbearer to the king. Now, the job of a cupbearer, as the name implies, was to bring the food and the drink to the king. And before the king would eat or drink from that, the cupbearer would take a bite of the food, take a sip of the wine, and then the king would watch to, to see what happened. If the cupbearer enjoyed his meal, then the king would go ahead and eat. If the cupbearer grew sick or dropped, the king knew something was wrong with the food and his own life would be spared. This was the job of a cupbearer to protect the king. In time, the cupbearer's role became much more significant than even this, though. Because of that unique relationship between the king and the cupbearer, that cupbearer could become a, a confidant for the king and even an advisor to him. And so it's truly a testament to Nehemiah's godly character that even though he was of a different ethnicity and in fact was, was a member of a conquered people, that this would be a man that the king of Persia would choose to stand by his side, to be his protector, to taste the food before he did, to be his confidant and advisor. It was in the providence of God that Nehemiah was permitted to ascend to this great height, but also a testament to Nehemiah himself. He was a man who had earned the trust of the most powerful king in the world, Nehemiah was exactly the kind of person that God can use to lead a reformation. Someone who embraced the God of heaven as his own king, a man who had come to God in repentance and faith, a man who loved the words of God, loved the people of God, a man who was not content to see God's people in their beleaguered state, but wanted to be used of God to bring them back to full vitality again to bring God's words back to the center of their lives. This is the kind of man that God can use, the kind of woman that God can use. But now, friends, let's see how this cupbearer in Persia became a leader of national reformation. In fact, we, uh, we learn the exact moment when it occurred here in verse 1. It says it happened in the month of Chislev. Month of Chislev. That's late fall on their calendar, so just about the time, that, the time of year that we're in right now. And then we're given the year. It, it occurred in the 20th year. That is to say, the 20th year of the reign of Artaxerxes, the king of Persia. And so that would place the events of this book in around, uh, at about 446 okay, B.C. Text also tells us where it happened. Nehemiah writes, I was in Susa, the citadel. Now, Susa was the winter retreat for the kings of Persia. When the weather started to turn, that's where they would head. Just as an aside here, the palace, the palace of Susa, was one of the most incredible structures of the ancient world. Archaeologists discovered this compound in 1890. It took them until 1960 to finish the excavations. 
What they found there was the following. A beautiful, grand, central courtyard in this, in this palace, this citadel, where the king would apparently host great feasts. And then off to the side, there was another beautiful courtyard and a great apartment complex. And that's where the king's harem would spend the winter. Then on the opposite side of the compound, there was another series of grand um, uh, courtyards with pillars that rose 80 feet and gardens and statues, colors, marvels of every description. And this is where people would wait if they wanted an audience with the king of Persia. And it was designed so as to fill the visitors with awe as they waited to speak to the king. And then in the center of this massive compound was the, the residence of the king himself. And at the top of it was the king's throne room. It was located above everything else so he could see the whole compound, and beyond that he could see all the way to the horizon. And to get to the king's throne room, you had to climb this long, steep ramp. It was a really imposing structure. And this is where Nehemiah lived. This is where he lived in the winter months. Nehemiah, as the king's cupbearer, would have had access to all of this. And so this man, Nehemiah, began with a godly lineage, grew up in exile in the Persian Empire, and the providence of God placed into the court of the most powerful man in the world, rose to become the cupbearer to the king, a man who, who gained the king's ear. He became an advisor, a confidant to the king of Persia. But he was a man of God as well, and now God is going to use him. We find out, verse 2, that one day while he was in Susa, he was greeted by a delegation. We're told his brother was part of that delegation, Hanna, Hanani, his brother. Now chapter 17 of the book says that Hanani was a godly man as well. The whole family, family of Nehemiah, loved the Lord. Hanani didn't come alone. It says he came with certain men from Judah. Now Judah was 750 miles from Susa. So this delegation has come a long way to speak with him. And they've chosen Nehemiah because he is a Jew like them, and they know he has the ear of the king of Persia. And so things have been happening in the promised land, and they want Nehemiah to know because they think he's in a position to help. Well, as soon as this delegation reaches Nehemiah there at the palace of Susa, he begins to ask about life in Israel. It says he asked concerning the Jews who escaped and of those who had survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem. So 
even though Nehemiah was living in the lap of luxury in the palace of a Persian king, his heart was still with the people of God. And so as soon as the delegation arrives, he can't help but ask, how are things going? He asks about all the waves of exiles who have already made their way back into Israel. He says, how, how are they doing? Did they make it in one piece? Are they doing well? Have they established new homes? How, how are the families doing? And then he also wants to know about those Jews who were not taken off into captivity, the ones who had been left behind. How have their grandchildren and great-grandchildren fared? Have, have they survived all of this time? And he wants to know about Jerusalem because Jerusalem was the capital city of Israel. It was the center of politics, economics, of their religious life, everything. So how are, how are the exiles? How are the people that never left? How is the capital city? How is everything going back home? He was hoping for a good answer. Unfortunately, the answer was very sad. Verse 3, And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. Nehemiah had been hoping for good news. He wanted to hear from his brother and the others that, yes, everybody made it back. They're all together, safe and sound. They're rebuilding their lives. Their homes are being rebuilt. The temple's in place. The city has been restored. God's people are alive and well. That's what he wanted to hear. But he hears just the opposite. He hears that even after 80 years, by this point, it has been 80 years since the first wave departed from Persia, headed back to the Holy Land. Even though it's been 80 years, the situation is not good. God's people were still physically endangered and psychologically distressed. Why was that? Well, the end of verse 3 says, because the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. So 80 years have passed and still everything is in shambles. The walls of Jerusalem aren't even back up yet. And understand the importance of those walls. Those walls were the only real means of protection against foreign armies and marauders and even wild animals in that day. So to have no walls around your city meant you were absolutely exposed to everything. And the gates in those walls. Those gates were very important too because those were the places where all of the legal and political matters were settled in Israel. You might remember the book of Ruth and how, how Ruth's relative Boaz had, had a transaction with a relative at the city gates. And, and in Proverbs chapter 31, it speaks of the virtuous woman and how her husband meets with the elders at the city gates. This was an important part of their civic life. And the gates are still down. Do you know, those walls and gates also set up a cultural barrier between the Jews and their neighbors. It helped to mark off the people of God from the rest. Inside those walls, God's people could, could worship Him and follow the Scriptures without fear. But the whole city was still in ruins, and Jerusalem's dilapidated state spoke to the lack of spiritual resolve in God's people. Friends, where was their zeal? 
Where was their zeal? Where was their passion to rebuild? Where was their desire to reconstitute their nation? So this was terrible news. The people of God were still, after all these decades, a beleaguered group, spiritually depleted. You know, when you receive news like that, there are a number of ways you can respond. You could respond with indifference. Oh, the city is still in shambles, huh? Well, not my problem. Another way you could respond is by being sad at the news, but then convincing yourself there's really nothing you can do. Nehemiah's case, I mean, he was 750 miles away from the problem. He was employed by the king of Persia. Seemed unlikely that that he would let Nehemiah go. So when you receive bad news like this, you could just say, that's terrible. It's awful to hear, but what could I do about it? There's another way you could respond. It's the way that Nehemiah did respond. You can grieve as you ought to grieve, but then you can resolve to act. Look at Nehemiah's response here, verse 4. He writes, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And again, this was the right response to hear that the people of God are not doing well. That, That... at a time when they should be thriving, that they are depressed and anxious and vulnerable. This is a thing to grieve. So Nehemiah, because he's such a godly man, he grieves the news. And then he does something else. It says that he, he fasted. He fasted for days. To fast is to go without food for a period of time in order to communicate that there are things more important than food to you. And so you go without food, and then you spend the time praying to God instead. And in your prayer, you're saying, God, I have a problem on my hands, a massive spiritual problem, and it is more important than food. I don't don't need you to nourish my body right now. I need you to fix this spiritual calamity. That's what fasting is all about. And so Nehemiah, he he weeps and he fasts, and it says he prays before the God of heaven. He begs God to do something. God, you you have raised up King Cyrus already. You You have sent your people back into the Holy Land. They have been there for decades now. Would you please, God, would you please revive your people? Would you please bring them back to their spiritual vitality? Help them to shake off this lethargy. And perhaps toward the end of his prayers, he starts saying, And God, show me how I can help. Use me, God. Use me to bring reformation to your people. And soon, friends, Nehemiah would also go. He would go. He would leave his comfortable life in a Persian palace to live in the ash heap of Jerusalem. Why? Because that's what godly leaders do. When they see a spiritual need, they act. Godly leaders 
spark reformations. They rise up and they build. This is what they do. And not for their own glory, by the way, but they do it to make a name for God. What breaks the heart of a godly leader is to see that his people are in shambles because that means that the reputation of God is being harmed. It means that the name of God is not being exalted. It breaks the heart of a man or woman of God to see God's people in a spiritually low state because they know what it means for God himself. And so, for God's glory, a leader like Nehemiah will rise up, help his people rebuild, and he will give God the glory from beginning to end. In fact, as we work through the book of Nehemiah together, we're going to see this. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 10, he speaks of the Israelites as a people redeemed by God. Then in chapter 2, verse 8, as he speaks about his work promoting a national rebirth, he says, the good hand of God was on me. And then in chapter 2, verse 18, as he speaks about the work being done, he says, God is working among them for their good. And then in chapter 4, verse 15, as they begin to experience opposition in the work, he says that God frustrated the plans of their enemies. And then in chapter 7, verse 5, when an important idea comes to him, he says, God put the idea into my head. And throughout this effort, Nehemiah refers to himself and to his co-laborers merely as servants of God. See, he is not trying to rebuild the nation for his own glory. He is doing it for the glory of God, and God gets all the credit for it from beginning to end. My friend, do you want to be used of God to spark a reformation in your own day? The church in America could surely use it. The church has lost its confidence in the Word of God, and we have strayed far from it. We are resorting to tricks and and gimmicks to try to get people to come back because we have no confidence in the power of the gospel to transform lives. This is a day where there are very few serious churches left. They're just silly churches on the landscape. We need reformation in our own day. Friends, do you want to see a reformation come about? Do you want God to use you or your children or your grandchildren to bring that reformation about? Then strive to become the kind of man that God or woman, the, the kind of man or woman that God could use to bring a reformation. Let it begin with you. See that you have have come to God in repentance and faith. See that you are rightly related to Him yourself. And then engage in the work necessary to grow in godliness. Study the Scriptures for yourself every day and then gather with God's people every week to study it further. Take advantage of every opportunity to go to a Bible study or a Sunday school class or a worship service so that you can absorb all that is possible from God's Word. Fill your life with the words of God. Learn how to apply God's Word to your life. Let that zeal for God's cause begin to stir within you. Let it it be used of God to prompt you to act. Parents and grandparents, make it your mission 
to raise your children and grandchildren in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, thinking that perhaps if God will not use you to spark a great reformation, maybe he'll use your child, your grandchild. Let it begin with you. And then seek to understand the needs of the hour. Look about you. Look at the state of God's people. Look at the state of Christ's church today and ask yourself, where are the battles being fought right now? Where are the theological controversies raging? What is the church's greatest point of weakness? Where does she seem to be failing? Where is the church becoming demoralized and discouraged? Where is the church showing a, a loss of confidence in the words of God? And then ask yourself, what would be required to bring her back to vitality? What action must be taken? What words must be spoken? What books must be published? What needs to be done? What prayers need to be offered? What must be done? And friend, once you've asked and answered these questions, resolve to act. Resolve to act. Don't say the problem is too great. Don't say God can't use a person like you. No, you take it upon yourself to do what you can with the resources that God has given to you. Looking at where God has placed you in his providence and say, let me be the first to act. But realize it's going to cost you time, money, and effort to do so. There will be a season of preparation like there was for Nehemiah. But then you're going to have to roll up your sleeves and, and get to work. There will be times when you may grow fatigued because of the work. Emotionally and physically, you might feel spent. There may be a cost in friendships or even in reputation as you give yourself wholly to this work. As you, as you pick a side and then you argue forcefully for that side and you work to build the institutions that will support that side as you seek a revival, there will be controversy because every side has two questions or every question has two sides. The moment you plant your flag on one side, the other side will react. There will be a cost. It will come with adversity. But friend, by the grace of God, you can be used to bring reform to God's people. God can use you in your sphere of influence, and perhaps as you are faithful there, God will give you greater platforms to instill a confidence in the words of God in other people. He can use you to spark a reawakening of spiritual concern. He can use you to strengthen what remains and then to build and to go on the offense. He can use you to accomplish the biblical mission. And he could do it right now in our generation. My friends, we are living in serious times. Serious times call for a serious church. To have a serious church, again, we're going to need reformation. How will it begin? It'll begin when God begins to move upon a man or a woman. A man or a woman who understands the needs of the hour and who is willing to act, no matter the personal cost. My friends, let it begin with us. Let's pray. Father, we are indeed living in serious times. 
We've come out of a multi-year pandemic. We've emerged from decades of war only to find the threat of new wars looming. A time of social disintegration. And we know that these times call for a church that is absolutely confident in your word and who has planted itself firmly upon your word. A church that is not afraid to speak the truths of your word, to enter the marketplace of ideas and to bring your words to bear. A church that is ready to roll up its sleeves, to rise up and build to build new churches, to fulfill the biblical mission. Lord, we know that you can do great things in our generation because you have done great things in the past. And we know it only takes one person, you can use one person to see it come about. And so we pray, pray for that one person or that one local church, that one association of churches. We pray that it might begin with us, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.